looking inside at the stuff that is scary and that you don't want to face, that's really hard, uncomfortable work. So in order to get to the other side, to truly feel compassionate for yourself and like to show yourself love, you have to come to terms with the ugly stuff. And that ugly stuff can be, I'm insecure. That ugly stuff can be that the only reason that I race is because I'm scared to die and this gives me something else to focus on. It can be that I feel validated and my self-worth is from this. Like all kinds of stuff comes up and that's normal. Like we're humans. That's the thing. Like that doesn't mean that you're broken. Like the more you can acknowledge that, be aware of it and be kind to it, the better chance you have of getting to the other side where suddenly you're just racing out of love. That's Brad Stolberg, and this is episode 53 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and every week on this show, I bring you conversations with some of the top athletes, coaches, personalities, and behind-the-scenes people in the sport of running. This week's episode, however, is not our typical running-centric conversation. I sat down with my good friend, Brad Stolberg, for a chat about performance, passion, health, well-being, purpose, burnout, and a lot of topics that are pertinent to your athletic, personal, and professional pursuits alike. Brad's an expert in this stuff. In addition to coaching executives, entrepreneurs, and athletes in the realm of performance, he writes about these topics regularly as a columnist for Outside Magazine. His work has also appeared in the New York Times, Wired, New York Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Runner's World, and plenty of other places. He's also the best-selling co-author of the book Peak Performance, which explores the science and practice of world-class performance across a number of domains. He and his co-author, Steve Magnus, are about to release their second book. It's called The Passion Paradox, which comes out on March 19th. Quick warning before we dive in, there's a little bit of adult language along with some heavy topics in this episode, just to warn you ahead of time in case the kids are around. All right, let's get right to it with Brad Stolberg. Sorry, I'm admiring your book collection here and trying to cross-check with my own and see which ones I have, and I actually have quite a few of those. I'm not surprised. All right, we're going on the record now. We are on the record now. I'm looking at Brad Stolberg's bookshelf, and it looks like you've got these categorized by area of interest. Down here on the left, I see My Marathon, The Secret Race, Endure, Iron War, well, Endure Again, uh, Alex Hutchinson appears twice on Brad Stolberg's bookshelf, Spitting in the Soup. is Am I correct? Is this organized by topic or genre? Yeah, and, and not surprised that Mario's eyes latched on to the athletic uh, the athletic section of the bookshelf. But well, the reason they did is because I own a lot of these books and I recognize the spines. Yeah, yeah. No, it's organized by topic as best as I can. And then actually the books behind you, those are the, the heavy hitters. I loved your book, Alex, but it just can't compare with Thich Nhat Hanh. Behind me, we have a lineup of philosophical, if you will, yeah, uh, which I would love to explore after this conversation. But let's roll right into it. Brad Stolberg, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Mm, thanks for having me, Mario. So for my listeners who aren't aware of you or your work, why don't you give me the quick elevator pitch? Um, I, 
I'm very interested in human performance and well-being, and uh, I think that the two go hand in hand. I think it's really hard to perform well if you are not healthy, and I think it's really uh, hard to be healthy if you feel like you're not performing well and you're not clicking. Uh, so those are the things that I research and coach on, and I also write about these topics. So I've got a book called Peak Performance that I co-authored with close friend and collaborator Steve Magnus that was released in June. Um, I've got a book coming out in March on the double-edged sword that is passion and really caring about something. And I've got a column at Outside Magazine, and then I do some, uh, some other work for large publications. Where did your interest in, let's start with peak performance, yeah. begin? So where did my interest in that topic start? I've had a circuitous path to get where I was. Um, when I was younger, my first job, or at least my first real job, was at McKinsey & Company, uh, which is a pretty high-powered, fast-paced consulting firm. And I burnt out pretty hard by the end of my two years there. Um, and at that point, I was going to go back for grad school regardless. Uh, so it was a nice natural pivot. And in graduate school, I started getting really interested in endurance sports. Um, ran a few marathons, did my first triathlon. Uh, you know, no surprise to your audience, it's easy to catch the bug, and, and I caught the bug. Um, and, and when I left McKinsey, there was a part of me that was wondering, is there a way to do this kind of full tilt, let's call it high-performance work, that is sustainable? Because I did it for like a good year and felt great, but a year is not a career. <laughs> and it wasn't long before I started feeling pretty burnt out. Um, so you were thinking about it in a professional in a sense. professional, yeah, but before starting triathlon. And then as I got into endurance sports, um, I noticed that a lot of the same themes actually apply to performance in a traditional workplace uh, as well as athletic performance. And particularly so for individuals that are um, driven, what I like to call pushers, uh, what some people call type A. Um, I think it's really hard to, uh, or excuse me, it's really easy to overshoot the target. And I think that that's what I was doing. Um, and, and in graduate school, thinking both about McKinsey, becoming an endurance athlete, making some of the same mistakes there, and then also studying public health. Um, this The kind of triangle of those three things led me to, to think about performance holistically and gain an interest in it. Would you categorize yourself as a type A personality? In recovery. <laughs> type A in recovery? Yeah, type A in recovery. What do you mean by that? You know, I think, I, I, so in all seriousness, I don't necessarily think that many personality tests have, are very accurate or have much predictive power. I think that we change over time and we change based on circumstance. Um, I, I would say that I have a pretty driven temperament. Um, you know, to nerd out for a second, if I may, like my guess is that dopamine is a neurochemical is stronger in my brain than serotonin. And dopamine is the neurochemical associated with excitement and pushing. Um, so I definitely think that I'm wired to push, push, push. And while that can be a wonderful advantage in some scenarios, it can also turn into something that's a negative thing. Um, it, it can be hard to be in the present when you're constantly pushing. Um, and it can be hard to, to understand the value of stopping and resting when you're wired to push. 
Did you always understand yourself in that way? No, no. I mean, not at all. I uh, The best part about writing these books, and, and to a large extent, most of the essays that I write as well, um, is that I helps me figure myself out. Like I, I, I try to be really clear that I don't write about these things because I have them figured out. I write about them to figure them out. And I wish I remembered who said it, but when I, when I first became more serious about writing and, and I'd say in earnest really started my, my career as a writer five years ago, um, there was a quote from a writer that said, write for yourself first. And I've, I've done that. I mean, I very rarely, if ever, can I think of a story that I wrote that I just wasn't interested in. There's a lot that we're going to peel back there, but I want to go back to something you just said a couple minutes ago before I forget to ask about it. But you said when you got into triathlon, coming off of your short but intense career at McKinsey, you noticed a lot of parallels between how you approach those two things. What were some of those parallels specifically? So the, the, the first, and this is before, before I kind of started doing the research on what it takes to sustain performance. Um, some of the parallels that I noticed uh, immediately was uh, a wanting to do more work because you like the work and because there's a little bit of insecurity. So if I just put in these extra four hours on this slide deck, it'll be good enough for the client. If I just tag on an extra 20 minutes to my, my long run, I'll have a little bit more fitness. Um, and I think that that insecurity alone might not be powerful enough to lead to overwork, but if you actually enjoy what you're doing and you have that little bit of insecurity, uh, you can really push yourself too hard to a point where forget marginal return, there's actually negative return. Um, so that was certainly a big theme. Uh, another big theme was just the importance of community and the people with whom you surround yourself. Um, I think just about in anything, whether it's a, a traditional workplace, a training environment, uh, or even like a local community and a group of friends, the, the, we tend to underestimate the impact of the people with whom we associate with and, and with whom we surround ourselves. So was it that initial entry into endurance sports, let's say specifically triathlon, because you competed at a fairly high level for an amateur triathlete for a couple of years, that helped you recognize some of those same patterns that you were exhibiting in your professional life? Totally. Um, it was certainly not sp corporate world applied to sport. It was sport and learning about how to train well for endurance sports and learning about all the common traps in training in endurance sports that I immediately saw parallels to other areas of work. And not just the corporate world, but creative work as well. Um, and that was really the genesis to, to get back to your original question of the book. Um, I remember thinking like someone must have written this book or many people must have written this book. This, this stuff is so clear. Uh, and I looked around and no one had written the book. Um, and, uh, and it was at that time that I was becoming kind of internet pen pals with, uh, Steve Magnus, who is, a Renaissance running coach. Uh, so he does coach running. That's his primary thing. But he brings a very interesting um, approach to his coaching. Pretty creative, I'd say. And uh, we were emailing back and forth about this idea 
that there might be these broad principles of that performance. And I remember um, sharing a book idea with Steve and saying, like, hey, do you think I could write this book? Would anyone read it? Does does this make sense to you? And uh, Steve told me that I've been thinking the exact same thing, and here's like 75 pages of notes to prove it. Uh, I read the notes. There was a lot of overlap. And at that point, we, we said rather than work against each other, we should work with each other. Okay. Aside from performance, the other interest that you mentioned was health. Yes. And you went to grad school and studied public health. What spurred that specific interest for you? So it, when I was at McKinsey, a lot of my work was in, in healthcare. Um, I worked for a lot of insurance companies and hospitals and in a few physician groups. So at the time, I was much more interested in health policy and healthcare management. Um, It wasn't long once I was at public health school that I realized that health policy and managing a hospital is actually putting a lot of band-aids on bigger issues that if you can get to the underlying cause... Um, you'd save a lot of human suffering and then also a lot of healthcare cost. Um, so my interest started to morph less from how can we design an efficient healthcare system to more how can we impact the root causes of poor health, um, which are things like physical inactivity, lack of social connection, um, tobacco use, alcoholism. So so getting upstream and, and, and even alcoholism and tobacco use is like a secondary, like why do people become alcoholics? Like really addressing these core areas of humanity versus putting Band-Aids on them two or three steps down the, down the road. When did these two paths then converge, performance and health, to the point where you decided you wanted to start pursuing them and writing about them and eventually sharing those writings with other people? So it it started off as a total hobby. So coming out of grad school, I took a job at a large integrated healthcare system um, doing strategic consulting work. Um, this was in 2011, 2012-ish, uh, where everyone that was an endurance athlete had a blog. So of course, I had a blog. You know, I think I called myself an elite amateur endurance athlete. I laugh at that now. Is that blog still online? Oh, God, I hope not. I'm going to go look for it as soon as we get off this conversation. Um, so I had a blog, which was great. No one read the blog but me, um, but it, it was a regular writing practice. And I think I probably blogged once or twice a week, so I was writing. Um, Who were you writing for? Myself, this blog. Like, And even then, I think I was writing for myself. Um, again, I'm terrified to, to look back and see what the hell I was writing. But I was writing every, I was writing every week, maybe twice a week. But you didn't think anyone was going to read it or you didn't share it with anyone. It was just the easiest way for you to get this stuff out and down somewhere. I think so. Maybe there was a little bit of like delusional ego that thought that other people would read it and comment and care. But I wasn't so delusional. Like I wasn't submitting these articles to Sports Illustrated or anything. You know, it was um, it was very personal. Um, and then about a year into my gig um, at this healthcare system, my grandma uh, was in the dying process of lung cancer. And she was receiving care that was very different to the kind of care 
that um, we were trying to do where I work, uh, particularly on end-of-life care. And being totally naive to how these things work, I wrote an essay and I sent it to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Los Angeles Times. And uh, an editor from the Los Angeles Times called me like two days later and said, who are you? And I'm like, uh, Brad. <laughs> and um, she really liked the article and they ended up running it uh, on a Sunday. And this was a few years ago when the Los Angeles Times was arguably one of the, the those were the big three papers, sure. maybe WAPO. Since then, the, the Los Angeles Times has struggled a bit. Uh, and the story did really well and, and had enormous readership. And from there, I had more opportunities to write and I just said yes to all of them. Um, and then what happened is gradually over time, I shifted more of my energy and more of my hours to writing away from the corporate consulting work. Mm. But I, I mean, I, I don't want to make this like a rosy picture. It was a hustle. If, if you look at the trajectory of my writing, it was blog that no one read, naive, good fortune to have an article placed in the Los Angeles Times, unpaid Huffington Post, $100 an article men's fitness. I think we paid you 150 at competitor. I was getting there. I was like us. trying to figure out like when I did an article with Mario. So a few bucks at competitor, a few bucks at Sports Illustrated for a guest article. Uh, and then my big break was Outside Magazine took a chance on me almost five years ago now. And uh, I started writing regularly for them and just have had a wonderful relationship. And, and that, that became my home. Yeah, it's not an easy way to make a living as a freelance writer in this space, especially if all you're doing is these mid-length magazine articles, not even magazine articles, online web articles that just don't pay a lot of money. But let's go back to that initial piece that the LA Times ran. What was it specifically about that piece that resonated with people? It was at a time that was still politically pretty fraught with death panels. And, and the crux of the article was that individuals should express their their wishes and their preferences for end-of-life care before they get into a situation where they're acutely ill. And my grandma had none of that advanced care planning. That's the term for it. And as a result, she kind of lost the ability to make decisions for herself. And it led to all kinds of issues. My mom feeling guilt. What should I do? Should we full court press? Should she be in hospice? My mom's sister then agreeing, disagreeing with my mom, so family tension. So all these things that aren't supposed to happen happened. And um, I just wrote an article saying, like, this is insane. Like, this isn't about death panels. This is about, like, preventing all kinds of emotional suffering in people. And advanced care planning should be a normal part of healthcare. It shouldn't be looked down upon. If anything, it's empowering. Um, and I think it was just at a cultural moment where there was so much hyperbole around death panels and end-of-life care. I like to think I just wrote a very sane article that I think a lot of people on both sides of the political spectrum read and said, well, wait a minute, like this just makes sense. You touched on dopamine earlier in the conversation. Did you get a little bit of a dopamine hit from oh, that totally. article, the response to it, which totally. spurred even more writing? Totally. I mean, right? Like or wanting I, to do more writing? I yeah. And, and, and I, I left out something in my background that is maybe important to this story is my route to writing was circuitous, but I've always wanted to be a writer. So I went to undergraduate school at the University of Michigan and I only applied to two other schools. One was Washington University in St. Louis because I was going to go there to play football. And the other was the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern because I wanted to be a writer. 
and Medill was my first choice. I was going to walk onto the football team. That was my plan, and I didn't get in. And when you're a 17-year-old kid, you're like, oh, guess I'm not going to be a writer. Then I went and studied like psychology and business. So it was um, always in the back of your mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think at that point, it, it, it was not in the back of my mind that I was going to ever be a pro writer. I, I could have never imagined myself here at age 20 or 22, but at age 17, I would have thought, yep, that's where I'll be. Okay. Take me through your competitive career as a triathlete. As you became more competitive in the sport, what were some of the things that jumped out at you related to performance that were eye-opening? So the, the my career as a triathlete was um, decent amateur at best. Um, but I'm proud of what I did as a triathlete because, you know, Mario can see me, he's sitting across from me. Like I said, I was a pretty good high school football player. I played slot receiver, tight end and outside linebacker. Uh, my body likes to be around 200 pounds. I'm 5'11". Ironman triathlon, that wasn't what my body was built for. Um, so I went as fast as I could with what I, with what I had in an ethical way. Um, the themes that started popping out to me first and foremost was this notion that I and so many other triathletes thought that you'd get fitter by training, which is only partially true because you get fitter by training and recovering from that training. Uh, and there's all kinds of parallels to the, the traditional workplace and creative and artistic work there as well. Um, something else that, that really stuck out to me was how, and I already mentioned with community and the people with whom you surround yourself, but just how your physical surroundings and the context that you're in can have such a big impact on your performance as an athlete. Um, and again, a big parallel outside of sport there as well. Um, and then the third thing, which at the time didn't pop out to me, but in hindsight was kind of creeping up all along, is the importance of purpose and having some kind of motivation underneath what you do. Um, ideally, that is not just self-serving and self-centered. I don't think I had that at the beginning of my triathlon career and probably not at the end. And I think when I stopped doing this, it was kind of like, why am I doing this? Like, there's If I'm just doing this to get faster for myself, am I doing it because I'm insecure? Am I doing it because I think qualifying for Kona will somehow make me complete? Um, none of those things are really true. Um, or at least I didn't believe them to be true. Uh, so my ultimate departure from the sport was definitely like enough of injuries and fighting against my body, but also this sense of like I didn't really feel like I had a strong purpose for doing it. Aside from that last point, what were some of the things that you learned through triathlon that set off a light bulb in your work life that helped you to recognize some of the things that you were struggling with or needed to yeah. change because we didn't really talk about this shit, but you were really burned out from, from how hard you were working. Totally. So the first is this notion that, that is the first chapter of the book. It's called, or the first section of the book, um, called the growth equation, which is this notion of stress plus rest equals growth. And I think I was totally neglecting the rest part of that equation. Stress, stress, stress. Yeah. More is better. Yeah. And in sport, um, you stop one rep short. At least if you're wise, you stop one rep short. And I started applying that to my my life as a consultant. And I was getting a lot more done and feeling a lot better. Um, 
And then I started looking at the research and creativity. You, you never want to we'll go until the well is empty. You want to go until the well is kind of getting close to empty and then stop. So you pick it back up the next day. Um, the importance of sleep and just how our bodies don't grow when we're training. Our bodies grow when we're sleeping. Yet so many athletes cut sleep so they can train more. But that doesn't work. That doesn't help. In the corporate world, same thing. Like, Sleep, sleep is a sacrifice. Um, sleep is at the cost of being productive. And I kind of had this aha moment that like, actually sleep is so productive. I remember in grad school, this I figured out early, I would go to bed and because I was like an obsessive triathlete, I'd be like, I'm going to get fitter when I sleep. And I'd sleep nine hours and feel great about it. Um, but then I started doing that in work and feeling really well and performing better. Um, and, and that ultimately led to this realization that hard should be hard and easy should be easy. And what so many athletes do, what so many creatives do, what so many professionals do is they go kind of hard all the time and never really easy, but they can never really go hard. And over time, you end up getting stuck in this gray area. Yeah, and I see that a lot with athletes that I've worked with or who have consulted with me. You look at what they've been doing and they're never going that hard, but they're never really going that easy. They're just sort of stuck in the middle and they've plateaued and and stuck is the operative word there. It's a hard pattern to get out of. And as I was reading you and Steve's book, Peak Performance, I told you this before, I was nodding my head almost the entire time because a lot of the things that you guys wrote about, I had observed or knew intuitively in my own practice as an athlete and then as a as a coach, but you had research to back it up and say, well, that's just not a hunch that you had. Like a lot of these things are actually true about especially that that stop one rep short. I had a coach tell me very early on in my career, you should always finish a workout feeling like you can do another rep if you had to, but you don't. And I actually write that into my athletes training programs now um, to do that. It was also surprising to me, as you alluded to earlier, that this book didn't exist yet. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and I think that these things are hard because, especially in this culture where it's more, 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 better, 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 faster, 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 that you feel like you need to give everything your all always. But what you don't realize is if you give everything your all always, by definition, you're not giving everything your all. <laughs> um, and the, the stopping one rep short... Uh, it takes a little bit of a leap of faith, uh, whether you're writing, whether you are working in consulting or banking or you're an attorney or whether you're a marathoner, because what happens is you get worse before you get better. Because the day that you stop one rep short or the week that you go to bed a little bit earlier, you're going to get less work done because you're, you're working less. Over months, over years, certainly over career, you get so much more done and of such a higher quality. Um, so it's like, you have to get over the myopic viewpoint of, yup, like my performance is going to suffer a little bit cause I'm going to be doing less, but over the long haul, it's going to be better, richer, more nourishing. Um, and that's a trap that is ubiquitous. Like that's not just athletes that suffer that. It's really, really hard to take the long view. Well, and it's also really, really hard to break habits. So how would you advise people in, situations where they've been behaving a certain way, whether it's in the office or on the roads training for a race to get out of those yeah. bad patterns 
that have gotten them there in the first place. Yeah. So so there's there's knowing and there's doing. And I think that first comes knowing. So if you're if you're questioning this stuff, um, look at the research. Like, read read the book. Um, don't just listen to me here. Like, the book's got tons of research. Or, or don't read the book and Google around. So, first, see the the very strong evidence base around rest in particular. But a lot of the principles in the book, like I'll pause that just for context for those that haven't read the book. That's what makes this an interesting book. There are all these books on performance. They're like, push harder, you know, Gary fucking Vanderchuk, go, go, go. And this is a book about performance that says actually like, eh, maybe not. Like let's, let's actually look at what the research says. Maybe real courage is not pushing so hard. Uh, maybe it's not all about you and your hustle. Maybe it's actually about the context in which you work. But it's also about pushing hard at the right times. Totally. It, yeah, it's not just like, you know, sit sit and sip on bourbon, although that's nice. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, it's about pushing hard at the right times. So, so look at the research and first know. Um, that's the first hurdle to get over. But then there's, there's what I call the knowing-doing gap, which is when you know something. Um, there's a wonderful, a wonderful psychiatrist and researcher named Judson Brewer that says that you've got to move from knowing intellectually in your head to wisdom in your bones. And a lot of people get stuck knowing. So intellectually, yep, I know the research, this makes sense, but I can't break the habit, I can't do it. And it's really hard to change habits. Um, and and I know this personally, I think every human knows that it, it's hard to change habits. Um, I think in particular around the issue of changing a habit around workaholism, whether it's in sport or in other areas of life, I think that you have to realize that you're going to face anxiety when you first start doing less because you're going to feel like it's not enough. I'm falling behind. If you're an athlete, I should be more tired at the end of this session, whatever it is. There's not an immediate reward there. Right. And that anxiety is what pushes you to keep going. And in order to break the pattern, you have to sit with that anxiety um, and feel it in your body, go through all the self-talk that is associated with that anxiety and um, just ride it out. It's like surfing a wave. And if you surf that wave enough, eventually you become a pro at it and you don't even feel that wave anymore. It's obviously a lot easier to say than to do. Um, Being real compassionate towards yourself, I think, is important. So in any habit change, when you slip up, the last thing you want to do is judge yourself for slipping up because that just makes you feel worse and more likely to actually slip up again. It's this paradoxical effect. So just be kind to yourself. Like It's really hard to change habits. I'm a, I, I Tell yourself a story. Like, I'm a little bit insecure. I think I need to work harder. I know it's going to be hard for me to shut things down. I'm going to be kind to myself. And then also the power of um, just enlisting people around you to support you. Hey, bear with me while we take a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It is Rise Run Retreat. Rise Run Retreat is a four-day women's running retreat. It takes place from May 16th to the 19th in Vermont and was founded on the idea that when women come together through running, they inspire and strengthen one another. Nestled in the Green Mountains, the picturesque village of Woodstock serves as the backdrop to all of Rise Run Retreat's activities. You'll explore country roads, run through gentle wooded trails, listen to inspiring guest speakers, and participate in numerous workshops. Joining host Sarah Canny at Rise Run Retreat this spring is Sally McRae, professional ultra runner, coach, and all-around inspiration to many. Quick side note, I happen to coach Sally, and let me tell you, she's got amazing energy, an incredible story, and you will just love spending time with her for four days in Vermont. 
In addition to all that, guests will hear from Kristen Shunis, who's a confidence coach to female athletes at the collegiate, professional, and Olympic level. You'll also have the chance to work with injury prevention specialist and running coach Kim Nato. Guests will take part in group runs, restorative yoga, and cross-training sessions, and you'll also have the chance to chat by the fire pit, soak in the jacuzzi, or find a quiet spot to relax. Sounds pretty amazing to me. Limited to just 16 women. Sorry, guys. The small-scale setting makes for a unique and impactful experience. Registration for the retreat includes all lodging, wholesome meals provided by the local farmer's market, and an amazing swag bag. With only a few spots still available, registration is sure to fill up before the April 7th deadline. So head to riserunretreat.com and use the code TMSPOD. That's all capital letters, and save 100 bucks off of your registration fee. My thanks to Rise Run Retreat for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. In your own life, have you gotten better at habit changing as you've researched these things more and are exposed to you know, more of these strategies of how to, how to better do that? Or is it something that you still struggle with when you're trying to break a bad habit? I struggle, but I struggle less. Um, yeah, I, I'm by no means like the Zen master of productive habits, um, but I struggle a lot less than I used to. And I think that the two biggest things that have helped me is this notion of um, really just being aware of how you feel when you do what you do. And not judging, but just being aware and letting that awareness kind of work on itself, if that makes sense. Um, and then the second thing is, um, and this is still very hard, but just becoming more compassionate towards myself. Um, so acknowledging that certain things are hard and not being so quick to judge when you inevitably fall short. Um, but instead, like surrounding that fall with like loving kindness and compassion Again, it's like very ironic that that actually makes you much less likely to fall again than when you're like, oh crap, like I said I was going to stop short. Now I'm injured again. I suck, I suck, I suck. Why is self compassion so hard for people? I don't know. I think, I think that a lot of it is just that self compassion requires slowing down and looking inward and being honest with how you feel. And culturally, that is not the default option. It can feel like swimming upstream. And I think self-compassion... So the word compassion comes from suffering, right? Passio is to suffer. And compassion is actually to suffer together. So you show compassion for someone else, you suffer together. Self-compassion is compassion for your suffering. But that requires facing your suffering, and like looking inside at the stuff that is scary and that you don't want to face, that's really hard, uncomfortable work. So in order to get to the other side, to truly feel compassionate for yourself and like to show yourself love, you have to come to terms with the ugly stuff. And that ugly stuff can be, I'm insecure. That ugly stuff can be that the only reason that I race is because I'm scared to die and this gives me something else to focus on. It can be that I feel validated and my self-worth is from this. Like all kinds of stuff comes up and that's normal. Like we're humans. That's the thing. Like that doesn't mean that you're broken. Like the more you can acknowledge that, be aware of it and be kind to it, the better chance you have of getting to the other side where suddenly you're just racing out of love. Yeah. And I think your point about slowing down is 
huge and, and obvious to me, especially in today's society where we are accessible all the time. The pace of work, the pace of life, the pace of everything has been accelerated to the nth degree. And we feel like if we slow down, we're going to get left behind. But it's an integral step in certainly that self-compassion that you talked about, but just overall awareness of yeah. what's going on at any given time. And I know for you, meditation is a big part of your daily practice. Are you still meditating twice a day? Um, I try to meditate twice a day. Uh, I've, I've now gotten 11 month old. So the, the afternoon sessions are harder because we pick them up from daycare. And um, oftentimes like the awareness is just being fully present with him. But yeah, I meditate every morning and probably 50% of the evenings. And for you, how has that meditation practice helped you to become more aware, helped you to slow down what's going on in your life so that you can tackle the rest of your day? It has, it has helped in so many ways. Um, I think first and foremost is it's helped me realize habitual patterns of thinking and feeling. So there's a big misconception about meditation, which is when I meditate, I'm going to do it to relax. Not like very rarely does that happen, at least at first. Um, when you sit and meditate, what ends up happening is all the stuff comes up that you don't otherwise give space to come up. Um, I can't believe I'm sitting here doing this. I've got this whole list of to dos. Um, what am I going to get out of this? You know, all kinds of self doubt, negative self talk, all kinds of stuff comes up. Um, and if you run away from it, then it just comes up again and again. But over time, what happens in the practice is you learn to see these cycles of thoughts and emotions that accompany them. It's just very predictable weather patterns. And you can be separate from the weather patterns. You can be like, oh, look, it's raining. But even though it's raining, I'm going to go do this other thing versus be, being the rain yourself. Um, so that removal and that ability to see habitual thinking patterns then lets you put self-compassion around those thinking patterns and, and, and make change. Um, and then the other thing that it's done without getting too woo-woo is um, it's just really helped me feel more connected to those that I care about and, and to communities that I'm involved in. Um, and that's something that, like, um, again, with, without I write about science without trying to sound so woo-woo. Like you just kind of have to do it and see it for yourself. And, and not everyone has that experience. Let's bring it back to you and your trajectory as a writer. So you've gotten this piece published in the Los Angeles Times, and then you start writing for Men's Journal, Competitor, maybe Runner's World at that time, or that mm. came <laughs> no, later. Runner's World I don't was know. there. Sorry, Runner's World. I forgot Runner's World too. Was <laughs> I, I don't know the, the exact trajectory, but you had mentioned how you write about things that you're trying to figure out for yourself. So what were some of those initial articles that you were pitching to editors or pursuing because you were interested in learning more and applying those lessons to your own life? At first, it was a lot. Um, the focus was mainly on athletics in particular. So it was how to get faster at endurance sports. Um, over time, it morphed into more of what I would call like holistic life performance. Um, so certainly applicable to sport, but also outside of sport. Um, and, and Outside Magazine has been a wonderful home for this because m my column there has evolved so much. Um, 
and to an extent, the magazine has evolved with it, at least in this particular vertical, where there are times when I write a story for outside that is every bit as applicable to parenting as it is to racing. Um, and I'm really fortunate that they've kind of taken a shot on expanding like that. And, and so far, it seems to have worked out. Um, so I think it was, it was a gradual morphing from very specific articles related to sport to articles about how to be more present, to be more focused, um, how to sleep better, how to recover better, how to feel more connected to your community. So things that are not necessarily like, you know, uh, 24 grams of protein and 30 grams of carbohydrates, but more mindset um, work. So not necessarily prescriptive, but... Yeah, I mean, some are, you know, some are prescriptive because I, I think that like... There's like brain candy as a mentor of mine calls it, but then like you want the practice that's going to help. But yeah, like more kind of thought stories. One of the biggest pieces that you've done for outside, one of the most impactful, not just on me, but many of your readers was when you wrote about your own struggles with mental illness. Talk to me a little bit about the genesis of that piece and why you felt it was important to put it out in the world. Oh man, how much time do we have? <laughs> we got all the time you need, man, or at least until we got to leave for our event tonight. Um, yeah, so, so, um, yeah, where to start? So, uh, around two and a half months after Peak Performance got published, um, kind of out of nowhere, I had a massive panic attack, and it was the first panic attack I've ever had. Um, and it's pretty fucking horrifying. Like panic attacks, like you, you just feel like you are dying, and then your mind also convinces you that you're dying, and um, not a fun, not a fun thing to have happen. Most people have panic attacks, and it's a horrifying 24 hours, and they get on with their life. Um, a small pr- proportion of the population, uh, panic attacks can kind of set off um, something that is more chronic, and in my case, that's what happened. And it was about two and a half months after that panic attack of trying to figure out what was going on. Um, Did I have a heart arrhythmia? So first it kind of was like a physical pursuit, but still anxiety, but anxiety around physical things. Um, And then it got into more of psychological issues. So was I really depressed? Like like something always just felt really wrong um, to the point where I didn't even want to leave my apartment. And... uh, in October of 2017, uh, I finally got in to see a good psychiatrist and was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, um, which I didn't know anything about. Like I thought the OCD was how it's portrayed on TV, which is like you're a clean freak or you're meticulously organized. Um, but that's not what OCD is at all. Like OCD is god awful, debilitating. Um, it's like you're living in a nightmare. And OCD can take on different themes. So for the person that's a clean freak, the theme is around cleanliness and germs. And their brain is misfiring and constantly telling them that they're dirty and that if they don't address the dirtiness, they're going to get a disease and die. And um, that sounds like so irrational, but like your your mind-body system, it feels like this is going to happen tonight. Um, But that's only one theme. There are multiple themes. Um... My OCD centered around self-harm and existential distress. So I became really convinced that I was going to hurt myself. Um, I became convinced I was going to commit suicide. And I had very depressive feelings along with that and got stuck in this cycle of anxiety about the fact that I didn't want to feel like this. 
and I had no reason to, yet I still feel like this. And I was just resisting, 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 which I didn't know then, but I know now, as we said, like only makes feelings stronger. Um, so, uh, again, I had wonderful medical care, um, got really good treatment, um, worked with a wonderful therapist, took medication, which is a whole other thing because I've written stories that are like, oh, just go exercise. Um, but I had no idea what it was like, what severe OCD is actually like. Sometimes or exercise or isn't enough. Isn't enough, exactly. Um, and that's another thing is a little segue. So I don't judge anyone that, that you know, like in, in, the, in the community of people that have suffered or suffer from mental illness, oftentimes people get real frustrated when someone's like, well, why don't you like just go exercise? Um, I don't judge anyone because that used to be me and I never meant harm. I just had no idea what it was like. Like I thought that being sad was breaking up with a, a college girlfriend that I thought I might marry. Like that was devastating. That was, that was the most depressing thing that happened to me. Exercise helped a lot. I felt better. I didn't understand that like clinical depression is a whole different, different universe sure. from that kind of sadness. Um, so, so anyways, fortunate to get good healthcare. The genesis of that story, um, it's actually very particular. I was, um, it was in November. So I had been, I had the diagnosis for only like a month and a half, but the panic attack was a good three and a half months ago. So this shit was going on for a little while. And I was in Virginia to run the Virginia half marathon with my younger brother. And it was supposed to be like a celebratory, um, vacation trip for kind of to put an end on my competitive running for the year. And he was finishing up a really hard year of medical school. And it was just an awful time. Like the OCD, that was like one of the worst periods, period. And on that trip, I got three emails from young people who had read my book saying, Hey Brad, this book's awesome. Like I'm 24. Like, how can I be like you? Or like, how do you have it all figured out? And the amount of cognitive dissonance and distress that I felt when I got those emails was almost worse than like the OCD thought cycle itself. Um, and I remember thinking like, I just can't do this anymore. Um, so I either need to stop writing about this stuff, which was very appealing at the time. Um, or I need to somehow like close this gap because like the amount of distress that it's causing to have a public image as the performance guru, but privately like not be able to get through a freaking day. Um, that was just, that was not working for me. Um, so I, uh, I eventually decided, and this was like in conversation with my therapist and my wife that I wanted to write about the experience um, and just write about it in a no holds bar way. And uh, I went to my editor outside who I, I love. His name's Matt Skenazy. He's a great guy. And we talked about it and we said, okay, like, let's do it. Um, so I wrote the story. And was the actual writing of the story for you cathartic at all? Terrifying. Was, yeah. Okay. Take me through <laughs> yeah. that. I mean, maybe, maybe at times it was cathartic, but it, I'd say the predominant emotion was scary. Um, not so much at all, actually, because I worried what other people would think. I kind of like am known not to really give a shit about what other people think of me. Were you worried that you would regress at all? Yeah. So I was worried, and this is like part of like the anxious, obsessive mind, is I was worried that by writing about it, 
it was like I was exerting control over it. Like, oh, I'm this writer that now has you figured out so I can write about it. And then it would like come back with a vengeance. Um, it actually turned out to be a really helpful part of my recovery and my treatment because the way that you treat OCD and many anxiety disorders is you do the thing that makes you anxious. You face it, yeah. Yeah, so my therapist is like, great, like, you think this is going to make it work? Like, write your heart out. Or excuse me, make it worse, write your heart out. Um, yeah, so I wrote about it, and then um, I got beautiful advice from my co-author, Steve, not obviously on that story, but on the book, who's become a good friend and, and who's been through some stuff in his own life. And he warned me, and he said, when the story comes out, he saw an early version. He's like, this is the best thing you've ever written. When this comes out, it's going to go crazy. People are going to read it. They're going to say that you're a hero. Like You might even save some lives. And you're going to feel like you're on cloud nine. That dopamine hit. Don't let that fake you out. Like You haven't conquered this thing. And thank God he told me that because I was prepared. Like That's The story advice. came out. I was on top of the world for like a week. Um, it still warms my heart that like all that stuff happened. People reached out to me that like had suicidal ideation and were scared to admit it. And they're like, Oh my God, I have OCD. And they got diagnosis, they got treatment. So like really great stuff. And then I remember like two weeks later, like having a day where I was just stuck in OCD world. Um, and it wasn't easy, but I'm like, Oh yeah, Steve told me this would happen. What amazing foresight. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a beautiful person, a wonderful friend. Looking back prior to your panic attack, is there anything that jumps out at you or your therapist that makes sense in retrospect to what led up to that so, moment and that spiraling of events? So this is, this is tricky. Um, a big part of recovery from OCD is not always needing the answer and not having things tied up in compelling narratives which is my job, is to write compelling narratives. That's why I asked. So it's pretty hard to, to accept that still. So there was a part of me in therapy that really wanted to dig and try to figure out like what the, what the impetus might have been or if there was like a spark that set this off. Um, but we didn't do that because my therapist is like, what does it matter? Like, it's happening. Um, I, I, I had intensive therapy for a year and then my therapist fired me, which is like the best compliment you could ever get from a therapist. Um, since then, and I'm sorry, Brooke, I've, um, I've done a little bit of research on OCD and of, of the major mood disorders, it seems to be the most neurobiological. So it's, it's a part of the brain and particularly a part related to the glutamine and dopamine system that's just going haywire. And before I had this, I had my first book come out and it did really well. That's a lot of dopamine. At the start of the conversation, I told you I'm kind of like a dopamine junkie. In conversations with other people that I would say are really driven pushers that share the same temperament, I found that some of them have had OCD diagnosis and I just didn't know about it or have had terrible obsessive thoughts and have just gotten so used to them that they kind of like self-therapied by exposing themselves to it. Um... So now I'm actually talking to a psychiatrist just as colleagues about the link between really positive dopamine firing and the onset of something like OCD. And if this isn't part of a broader temperament, which is like someone that struggles to be content, whose mind and body is constantly racing, and that's kind of like loading the gun, 
And then the trigger can be any event, but, but, but then when that part of the brain goes out of control, it tends to latch on to, the, to, to things that are dark. Sounds like a possible book idea. I'm not there yet. You know, I, I, maybe I'll write about it one day. I, to be honest, I don't want to dive that deep into it yet. Um, and I go back and forth on like, will I ever? There's a part of me that wants to because I think it could be helpful to other people. And there's also like an ego part of me that's like, oh, I can like really be over this. Um, but then there's another part of me that's like, I care about my sanity too much. And like, I'm not sure if that would be good for me. Well, on the topic of books, <laughs> to be uh, determined, we're going to take a very sharp pivot. But on the topic it's of actually not so sharp. Well, on the topic of books, you have a new one coming out very soon called The Passion Paradox, which you co-wrote again with Steve Magnus, who you wrote Peak Performance with. And I got an early copy of the book. I was fortunate to be able to go through it prior to this conversation. And a few things that I wanted dig into that are that are in the book we'll get to here in a bit but when did the idea for the book itself come to be the idea for this book came to be about 6 months before peak performance was published maybe even like a year before so Steve and I wrote Peak Performance really quickly. Because there are seeds of this book that are certainly planted in Peak Performance. Yeah, yeah. so this stuff was on our mind. We wrote the, the manuscript for Peak Performance really quickly, and um, our editor at the time just had a huge backlog and was supposed to get us edits and was unable to because of the backlog. So Steve and I were in person together for like two by two weeks when we were thought we'd be going through edits and we just had nothing to do. Um, and we both got really restless and we're like, okay, like, well, let's start working on the next thing. And then we're like, well, wait a minute. Like, why do we want to start working on the next thing so bad? Why can't we just relax and be happy with the thing that we just did? And then we started thinking, well, like, what do we both have in common? Well, we've both always been told that we're, we're really driven and we're really passionate. And then that led to, well, what does it mean to be passionate? And is it a good thing that we already want to start working on the next thing? Or is it a bad thing? Um, and then the next thing became a project exploring passion. Um, and that's the book that's in your lap. You gave a definition of passion earlier in the context of compassion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But take me through the etymology of the word itself and where it comes from and why it's often misconstrued by many people. So this is fascinating. It's a fascinating part of the book. Steve and I went into this book with an underlying hypothesis that the advice that people get to find and follow your passion is either wrong or way too simple. And that it makes it seem as if you just find your passion, which you don't magically find, you develop it. And if you just follow it, you're going to have a great life we felt that there was a dark side to passion and that if you weren't careful with how you managed your passion, that dark side could creep up and in turn what was a good life-giving force into something very destructive. We started looking into what the word meant and the history of the word and we had no idea, but the, the word comes from the root passio, which is Latin for suffering. And it traces itself all the way back to the passion of the Christ. 
and I was born Jewish and raised Jewish. So like passion of the Christ, I, I knew that saying, like, right. I, didn't, I didn't know what it meant, but it meant suffering. So the, 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 the Paseo, passion means to suffer. And for the word's first thousand years, it was used exclusively to notate the suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross, or excuse me, on the cross during the crucifixion. Um, over time and around 1000 AD, the word started to become associated with mental illness and insanity and really down moods. So you would never tell someone like, follow your passion. Like passion meant like you are like- in the <laughs> Follow thick your of, insanity. Right, like you're in the thick of it suffering. Then um, Shakespeare started to use the word in a romantic context. But again, it wasn't positive. It was you're suffering for love. So, oh, I'm so passionate for this person. And a Shakespearean play was I can't have this person and I'm suffering as a result. That then morphed into passion being- I'm passionate about someone. So like, I really feel love for them. So not I'm suffering because I can't have them, but I love them. And then it wasn't until the, the, the kind of mid to late 1960s that passion was used more colloquially to note something that you really care about and that makes you tick. That is not just necessarily romantic for another person, but to be passionate about school, to be passionate about work. And then in the early 2000s, passion became like the thing that was preached for all athletes, all students, all workplaces, passion, passion, passion. Follow your passion, be passionate about your work, blah, blah, blah. And that's like the paradox is yes, passion can be great and you should be passionate. And yet like the word means suffering and there's a reason for that because there's this dark side of passion, which is suffering. And you guys write about, well, you just spoke about having passion for an object, whether it's work, whether it's an athletic pursuit, hobby that you like to pursue, but you guys write about passion as a practice. Talk to me a little bit about passion as a practice and what you mean by that. Yeah. So if, if you just let, if you're passionate about something and you're fortunate enough to cultivate a passion and you just kind of let it run wild, there's a good chance that it's going to lead to a lot of, um, a lot of pain and, and, and as I said, suffering, so you really have to practice your passion. Um, and I think that that comes up in two big ways. You could maybe say three. So the first is what in the literature is the distinction between obsessive passion and harmonious passion. So obsessive passion is when you're passionate about the results of an activity. Harmonious passion is when you're passionate about the activity itself. So this is the difference between I love running because I love the community aspect and I love what it feels like to push my body versus I love running because I like to post about it on Instagram and I think if I qualify for Boston, I'll be whole. The former, running because you love running, is really good and healthy. That's harmonious passion. The latter, running for some external validation or some result. It's called obsessive passion. That's very destructive. That's associated with anxiety, depression, and burnout. Why you have to practice passion is what tends to happen to a lot of people is their passion for whatever it is that they're doing starts out harmonious. Oh, running's great. Like it makes me feel good. And suddenly you get good at it. Then when you get good at it, you start to get good results. And often what happens is without even noticing it, you become more excited about the results and the recognition and the validation that those bring than the thing itself. 
So what started off as harmonious, if you're not careful, can become obsessive. And that's dangerous because eventually you're going to have a bad result. That's how things work. And then when you have a bad result, your whole sense of self can be shook up. So that's, let me go through the first three and then we can talk about some of the practices themselves. So that's the first area of practice, keeping your passion productive, harmonious. The second area of practice is around maintaining self-awareness when you're passionate about something. It's very easy to say, I'm going to go all in and this is the year I'm going to qualify for Boston or this is the year I'm going to run an Olympic qualifying time or this is the year I'm going to win a gold medal and give yourself permission to do that. And those can be great years. And if you get swept up by the inertia of that pursuit and you lose self-awareness to evaluate other things that are going on in your life and the trade-offs, you can follow a passion to the point where you don't have the ability to see what you're giving up as a result. And that can lead to a lot of pain now and certainly regret later. There's some really interesting research in the book that looks at the brains of people that are really passionate and people with eating disorders, and they're very similar. Someone with an eating disorder looks in the mirror and they don't see a completely, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not famished, but just like a skeleton. They see someone that looks fat. An entrepreneur looks in the mirror. They don't see a 99.9% chance that their company is going to fail. They see their company succeeding. So being really passionate, like what is thinking you're going to win an Olympic gold medal if not delusional? probabilistically, it's certainly delusional. So there's this, there's this connection between being passionate and becoming delusional. And it's really important to maintain some self-awareness. And then the third area of practice is around moving on from a passion and how hard it can be to retire if you're really passionate about your work or if you get injured and you have to stop a sport. So Sorry, you mentioned, a lot. No, it's quite all right. It was great. You mentioned this delusional element. I'd also say it sounds like there's an addictive element in there as well. Are those two things closely related? Yeah, they are. Um, there's, there's some really neat neuroscience as well as um, psychology on the relationship between addiction and passion. Um, it is not just a coincidence that so many ultra runners um, are in recovery. Um, it's kind of trading one very unhealthy addiction for another addiction that can actually be pretty healthy. And is one, well, I guess on some level, one is better than the other, but those same people still have to be careful about their new addiction. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that a, a definition that we use in the book and we discuss is so long as you have the power to choose, you're okay. So if you can choose, I'm going to run because I'm making the choice to run, that's okay. If you're running because you feel like you have to, that's where things can get a little bit dicey. A few more things we're going to hit on before we wrap up because we have to in a few minutes here, but I want to live a balanced life, Brad. Why is that a bad idea? Well, do you live a balanced life? No. Okay. Well, I mean... <laughs> but I want to. <laughs> yeah, but no, you don't. Um I don't think that you do. I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate Yeah, no, here. I know, I know, I know. We're, we're good buddies. Um, well, I think it's easy. So like, let, let me cross-question you, and at the same time, the audience can follow along. So, and before you answer, kind of think about it to let the audience think about it. Think about the three to four times in your life when you felt most alive. Do you want me to name those things for you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, 
I felt pretty alive the other day when I was on the top of Mount Tam all by myself in the snow, uh, just running around freely. That's fresh in my mind. So that's a recent example. But I mean like in the course of your whole life. Um, Maybe that was a hell of a day on Mount Tam, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a heck of a day on Mount Tam. But in my whole life, you know, I don't know that I'm equipped to answer that question right now. We might be here for the next hour as I'm thinking through when, you know, when that was, but I'm sure one of those moments was while doing something athletic in competition. Uh, I would say one of those moments was probably out doing who knows what with good friends of mine where you lose track of time and where, and you just, no, you're just in that. You're just really in that moment. I can't think specifically what those sure. are off the off the top of my head, but those are general examples. Of and were times you balanced during those periods? Life. How do you mean? Like, were you? Did you feel like you like everything in your life was like in equal proportions? No, because I think in those you know in those moments you are so in that moment that everything else kind of falls out of balance. Right. Exactly. So the the. In the reporting for this book, I asked so many people to tell me about the times that you felt most alive. And there were a few big themes. Um, one was really pushing for something personally. So starting a company, um, training to compete at a world championship level. Um, another theme was love. So being a new parent, falling in love with someone, um, and then a third big theme was being involved in some kind of greater cause or movement. During all of these periods, people reported being terribly unbalanced. When you're training for the Olympics, it's all that you're doing. It's all you can think about. Anyone knows that falling in love is like a total vortex. Like the object of your affection is often the only thing on your mind. Being a new parent certainly is not a time of balance. And then being a part of an advocacy campaign or a political campaign those are not balanced times. So the, the times when people feel most alive tend to be when they're not balanced, but when they're going all in fully present for something that matters to them. Um, so I, I think that balance is not the goal. I think the goal is actually to find those things that make you tick. And this is so important to maintain self-awareness so you can pivot away from that thing and at least protect the choice to pivot away from that thing when you need to. So balance is a myth. Yeah, I think there's a chapter me. in the book called "Balance is an Illusion." Okay, um, at least the way that it's talked about in in the pop culture. Because like I hear balance, and I'm like, wake up, get the kids ready for school, drive the kids to school, do my perfect workout, work a nine to five, come home, maybe go to happy hour, have a drink, um, watch a TV show, go to bed, rinse and repeat. And a to me, that sounds a little bit more like going through the motions than balance. Mm-hmm. B very few people can do that and be happy. And C, like people, and I'm, and I, I'm, I shouldn't say that because it sounds judgmental. I'm values neutral. Some people, people that can do that and be happy, I envy. Wouldn't that be nice? Just like be content. But for people that can't, trying to force that on yourself is dangerous. So what's interesting to me is I thought about this idea. I mean, it's right on the cover of the book. It's discovering the benefits of an unbalanced life. And I thought about your stress plus rest equals growth equation from peak performance. And that is inherently unbalanced. I mean, if you're really stressing and you're going all in on something, 
I mean, maybe you, maybe you balance that out with that period of rest, and that's how how you grow. But if you were to look at that on some kind of a chart, it's it's, it's very not, unbalanced. Yeah, but it's not balanced across life. So like right. you can be stress plus rest equals growth and running, and be perfectly balanced. I thought it was an interesting parallel yeah. between between totally. that growth equation and benefits of an unbalanced life. It's like in order to grow, you have to be unbalanced. Is what I'm getting at. Right, and I think in order to really have those moments when you're like totally captured by what you're doing, those tend to be moments when you're not balanced. Um, someone that's become a close a close friend is, um, and I think she's been a guest in your podcast, Shalane Flanagan, yes, who's one of the best American distance runners to ever live. And this is something that we've talked about a lot. That at first she'd kind of judge herself for being unbalanced because she'd be like, "Oh, like I'm doing all this running, I'm not paying attention to family, friends, whatever." But once she gave herself permission to. She had an easier time setting boundaries and being like, this is the running season when I sacrifice for running. This is the season of family and friends. And Shalane's an incredible person having the awareness to also realize that there will be a time when I hang up the running shoes and that passion, that obsession will shift. And maybe it will shift into family. Maybe it will shift into coaching. Maybe it will shift into friends. That's very different than judging yourself for not being balanced. I think the two key themes to pull out of that are, one, awareness and two, to bring bring back a point that you talked about a little while ago, that self-compassion, like yeah. being able to look at yourself in that situation and be like, it's okay. And I think another, another, really, um, another good way to think about this is don't aim to be balanced in a given day or week or even month, but when you look back over the course of your life, you should probably see some balance. Last topic we're going to touch on specific to your new book, and I had started uh, when I read it early on, is this idea that talent needs trauma. Mm. I'd love to explore that a little further with you. What do you mean by that statement? So that statement is is not my statement. That's a statement in the the talent development um, body of research. And it comes from work that suggests that individuals who go on to perform at an elite level at whatever it is that they do disproportionately report having some kind of childhood trauma. Um, That childhood trauma can be quite severe. So think a parent in prison or the death of a parent early on or um, some kind of abuse but that trauma can also be not so severe. It can be as simple as being bullied in school. But it's the perception of trauma in childhood is associated with elite level performance later on. Um, there are a few theories as to why that's the case. They all kind of center around the fact that that trauma creates um, a metaphorical hole in the person and that person has to fill the hole. And the way that you fill the hole is by pushing or by proving yourself. And that can be the fuel for all kinds of um, later uh, elite development and achievement. What if that trauma doesn't exist? Does that exclude you from being able to get to that level? I don't think so. I think, like I said, it's, it's, it's not causal, right? There's an association and, and it's a disproportionate linkage, but surely... There are people that get to that level that don't have trauma. Mm-hmm. And going back to something I said earlier, I think that trauma or anger or insecurity as fuel can work really well. 
But I think ultimately, like the best kind of fuel is love. Like if you're doing something out of love, that's to me when you have the best chance of like really hitting the zone and then staying in the zone, not just for a race or two or for a, a corporate season, but for years. Um, I think oftentimes what happens is there's some kind of trauma or insecurity that's fuel. And then at a certain point, that's that fuel kind of burns out and that's not enough or it doesn't feel right. And then people either stop or they kind of look deeply at that and they realize that that fuel is not healthy and they give themselves that compassion and they actually cultivate some love around what they're doing. And then that becomes what, what keeps them at, at that level or even takes them to the next level. You see this all the time with athletes, like athletes that either come so close to a medal and then burn out or achieve a medal. They finally say, oh, I got that off my shoulders. Now I'm doing this out of love. And then they're just happier and they perform better. I think whatever it is, what it comes down to is how you end up channeling it. Yeah, totally. And again, like the, 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 these are all in gradations. So it's if you're driven, if you're wired to be like super driven, it's a million times better, even if you're doing it out of insecurity to run marathons than to be an alcoholic. What's better than, so it's like a stepwise progression. Maybe you start as an alcoholic, then you become addicted to marathons because it fills the hole, but then eventually you run out of love. That's like kind of working your way up the whole progression, but that can take a lifetime. Like that's really hard work. And doing something like sport to fill a hole is a lot healthier than filling it elsewhere. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. Thank you for the past hour. Thank you, Mario. It's been super fun. Yeah, really enjoyed, uh, really enjoyed getting to talk to you about these things. All right, that's a wrap on this week's show. Hope you enjoyed this most recent episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. I'd love your feedback. You can send it to me on Twitter. I'm at Mario Fraioli, or you can go to your podcast app that you're listening to this on and leave a rating and a review. That helps new listeners to discover the show. Only takes a minute, and it is the easiest way to show your support. My thanks to Rise Run Retreat for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Rise Run Retreat is a four-day women's running retreat that takes place from May 16th to the 19th in Vermont and was founded on the idea that when women come together through running, they inspire and strengthen one another. On the retreat, you'll explore country roads, run through gentle wooded trails, listen to inspiring guest speakers, and participate in numerous workshops. The retreat is limited to just 16 women. The small-scale setting makes for a unique and impactful experience, and your registration fee includes all your lodging, wholesome meals provided by the local farmer's market, and an amazing swag bag. The deadline to sign up is April 7th, and it will fill up fast, so head to riserunretreat.com for more information and use the code TMSPOD, that's all capital letters, and save 100 bucks off of your registration fee. Let's see, what else? If you're digging the podcast, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe for my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that I think you'll also enjoy. And finally, big thank you to John Summerford of bearsrecords.com for handling all the audio production of this show. He also created the music himself, which is pretty rad. John is a big part of my small team and helps make The Morning Shakeout sound as good as it does week in and week out. I think that's it. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.